Esther chapter 6. Everybody's got some favorite places to go. Uh, Karina and I have got a, a place called Multnomah Falls. It's in Oregon. Uh, it's on the Columbia River Gorge. Anybody been there? Uh, okay, yeah, all right. So you know what I'm talking about. This, this place is awesome. There it is. There's a picture right there. Uh, these falls, I mean, there's something about waterfalls that are rather astounding. This one in particular just takes your breath away. Uh, 611 feet drop from the top of that cliff all the way down. You can take a 0.2-mile hike. You can get up on that bridge. You see that bridge? It is awesome to stand there and just kind of be between those falls as it's coming down. And then you can take another mile hike, and you can go all the way to the top of those falls. That's pretty cool. Now, they have some signs that warn you, like, do not get into the stream and things like that that seem pretty obvious, duh, right? But you can take, like, sticks, and you can throw them into that stream. And, and you know, that stick, if it doesn't make its way to the shore, it's like, man, it's going to go over there, and then it's going to be obliterated. And just the roar of that cascade, all that ice-cold water that's just flowing down there. Now, I've never seen this done, but what, imagine if you took a kayak, you know, and, like, started hiking up there. I can assure you, everybody that's making their little pilgrimage back and forth, they're like, come on, no way. And if you actually try to put that kayak in the water, I mean, not only to be ignoring all those written warnings that are up there, but people will be yelling at you like, what are you doing? Don't you know that you are completely going to perish? That would be, like, the, the worst thing that you could do. And if you did that and you had your kayak in there, you're only going to be safe if you get on the bank. And if you ignore all the warnings, you go over the cliff and you don't live to tell about it. Life in this world is like floating on a stream that is heading for a devastating fall. That's what life is like. And God has given us his warnings. They're found in Scripture. In fact, he's got his people everywhere that are begging people to trust in Jesus, to know life, hope, forgiveness. This is what you're designed for. You're designed for him. But you can ignore all the warnings, and you can ignore his people, and if you don't change course, I just want you to know, you face a fall of cataclysmic proportions. And that's really what you see happening in the book of Esther. We are going to encounter, as we open up to Esther chapter 6, What does it look like when pride prevails? Now, let me just give you a little background just to kind of catch you up here as we've been making our way through the book. We're in the Persian Empire. The emperor, the the ruler, is a guy by the name of Xerxes. That is his Greek name. Uh, He is known also by Ahasuerus. And he is the world ruler. He's powerful. Uh, He has a propensity to drink. He makes bad decisions. He's influenced by people. And he's lost several battles, specifically those against the Greeks. Now, he is still the most powerful man in the world, and he has now also, by this time, he has picked his number two guy, a guy by the name of Haman. He's risen him through the ranks. He has made him the number two guy. He's kind of like the prime minister. In fact, he's even handed over his signet ring. And he has even had a decree that has gone out and said that everybody that encounters this man has to bow down. And Haman, it's all about Haman, Okay. Haman is a guy who's addicted to glory, and it's not God's. It's his own. And he really likes it that everybody bows down. And everybody does this with one major exception. There's a Jewish guy by the name of Mordecai. He refuses to bow down. And he's even, Mordecai has even uh, played the Jewish card saying, I'm Jewish, and that's why I'm not going to bow down to you. Haman is so infuriated that he says, listen, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have you put to death as well as 
all Jews, all 15 million of you. And, I, and he goes to the king and he convinces the Hazarias that there's some people that just don't follow your laws. And I'll tell you what, I'll make this like a revenue stream for you. I can assure you about 10,000 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to about $245 million in today's money, that if you will allow me to give you this bribe, I will eliminate these people that don't seem to follow your laws, and they're not fitting in, and I'm doing you a favor. And Hazarius, without even investigating, out looking into the matter, hands him over the ring, and a date is set to kill all the Jews. Now, he doesn't know it, but he's actually married to one. He is married to this queen named Esther. He didn't, the first queen, Vashti, didn't follow through with all his little weird plans that he had for Vashti. He deposes her. And he has this little beauty pageant sort of deal where he rounds up all the most beautiful women in the empire. He ends up marrying this woman, Esther. She is Jewish. She just so happened to be the adopted daughter of Mordecai, the guy who refuses to bow down. And she is, she is selected to be queen. And you recall what takes place. God is going to bring about transformation in the midst of his fallen people. And you look at Mordecai and you look at uh, Esther, they're not where they should be. They should have been making the pilgrimage with the 50,000 other Jews that were faithful to go back to Israel. Cyrus, Xerxes' grandfather, had made a decree that the Jews could go back, rebuild their temple, rebuild their city. In fact, he said, I'll pay for it. And the faithful went. But they had a kind of amalgamated into the Persian Empire. Well, all that changed when they realized that, that Haman was going to exterminate them. And so Haman, kind of like the prototypical Hitler, he's got the decree went out. Mordecai literally rips his garments and he starts repenting before God. And he even sends some letters to Esther to inform her of about what's going to happen. And I'll just review with you, how does a faithful God transform a fallen people? This is what it looks like in their life, but it looks like in your life likely. He brings you to difficult circumstances where your back is literally against the wall because God has to strip you down from trusting in yourself to where you'll really trust him. And then he starts developing faith, developing your faith in him, that God is your only hope. And then he starts putting you in places where you can make defining decisions, like who you'll identify with and who you're going to follow and who you're going to trust. Well, that's what you see here as we've made our way through the book of Esther. Haman and Mordecai are different people, and then he follows that up by displaying grace. That's how God transforms a fallen people. And when you come to Esther and Mordecai, by the time you get to chapter 6, they are different people because they're now growing and maturing in the faith. And it's so much so that Esther has said in response to Mordecai's warnings that if I perish, I perish. She's not just like resigning herself. She is committing herself to trusting God. And Mordecai has said, listen, Esther, if you don't approach the king and risk your life to do so, God is going to raise up his, his arm of victory someplace else. But you and your family will die. You, on the other hand, God has raised you up for such a moment as this. And so she does. She puts her life on the line. She risked it all. She actually approaches the king uninvited, which usually is a, is a one-way ticket for death. But the king extends his golden scepter, and she actually, laying her life on the line, says, I, I ask you to come to a banquet, you and Haman. 
You know what they say, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's what's going on here. She's got Haman and the king. And she invites him to a banquet. The king, Xerxes, he cancels all of his plans. He says, sure, I'll show up. He brings Haman. They show up to the banquet. And at the banquet, he goes, all right, why did you put your life on the line? What did you risk it all for? Tell me. I'll give it to you, half up, up to half my kingdom. And she goes, you know, I've asked you here because I want to ask you to a party tomorrow. Whoa. You know what I mean? Like, really? So he says, all right. So he cancels all his plans. And so guess what? We're about ready to face banquet two. Now, after this banquet, uh, the guy, Haman, he cannot believe it, man. The queen, him, queen herself is now asking for Haman's presence. He is floating on cloud number nine because now he's actually seeming to become a confidant for not only the king, but even the queen. I mean, this is a party of three. And so he's floating on cloud number nine until he runs into, lo and behold, there's Mordecai. And at the end of chapter five, we find out that there's Mordecai. Of course, Mordecai doesn't bow down. That infuriates him. He goes home. He tells his family all about it. He tells his friends about all how great he is and how good he is. He's just like, got one problem. This guy, Mordecai. And they say, you know what, honey? You've got everything. And you'll be happy if you can just eliminate the things that really bother you. And in your case, you only got one. Mordecai. Why don't you send him on his, to his death early? Why don't you build a gallows? Make it really apparent so like everybody can see it. Make, make it 75 feet tall. Put it on a hill. Put it in your backyard so everybody can see it. What happens when you don't bow down to Haman and kill him? And he likes that plan. That sounds real good to him. And so he's, Haman is about ready to get ready for the best day of his life. Now, it is pride that drove him to have all the Jews killed. It is pride that is driving him to want to kill Mordecai on this, impale him on the stake. But pride does something even more devastating in Haman's life. Pride, the self-centeredness of pride, keeps you from seeing the providence of God. Now, when we talk about providence, what we're talking about is how God, in some invisible, inscrutable way, he governs his creatures and, his, and the actions and the nations and circumstances, and he does it through the normal, ordinary course of life, apart from the miraculous, apart from God doing something that is out of the ordinary, out of the normal ways he operates. It is God governing and guiding even in the midst of an evil and a fallen world. That's providence. Now, the world calls this coincidence, like Whoa, can you believe that? That happened and that happened at the same time? What a coincidence, right? But believers in God know that it is him at work, and they call it providence. But pride will keep you from seeing God's providence. And that's what we see as we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Pride will actually keep you from seeing the works of God in the world. Notice how it's taking place in Haman. Now, during the night... The king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, we don't know why he can't sleep, but the king is, he's got insomnia. Maybe it's because he's got some imperial matter that's taking place. Maybe he's like, why in the world would the queen, my queen, put her life on the line? Maybe he's totally perplexed by that. Why the second banquet? Or maybe it's because there's so much noise because Haman's men are building this gallows that he can't sleep. There's so much noise in the neighborhood, I can't sleep. I don't know what it is, but he can't seem to sleep. And so what do you do? Well, he needs an imperial sleep aid, otherwise known as the history books. And if you're having trouble sleeping, 
Find something that's really boring, historical, and it might help you. And the Persian kings had everything they did written down. They had their little scribe. They followed him every time they moved, made a decision. It was all recorded. And he's like, I can't sleep. And he yells at one of his eunuchs, go get me some scrolls and start reading me history, man. And that'll help me. Well, they do. And verse 2, it was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs who were bookkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. If you want to see providence, you just need to look at verse 2. Out of all the scrolls of the history of the king they could select, they select one that records the events of five years prior. And they start reading, and they read about this Jewish guy, Mordecai, who had spared the king's life. And he had actually turned these two guys in before the king was assassinated. And so they, they tell him about this, and they're reading. And he's probably thinking like, oh, yeah, now, what did I do for this guy? For the Persian kings, we know this, that they actually took, took it very seriously to reward anyone who showed them favor or did something great for them. For instance, Herodotus, this Greek historian, writes of this guy named Xenogras, who rescued Xerxes' brother, this very king's brother, from harm. And Ahasuerus rewarded him by making him the governor of Cilicia. So that's the kind of reward you get for saving a king's life. And he's kind of thinking like, oh, what what exactly did I, I can't remember. Can you refresh my memory? What did I do for that? Because that is a huge thing. And so, verse 3, the king said, ah, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, ah, nothing. Nothing has been done for him. Uh, and, And you know that they probably said it with like a little bit of trepidation because the king always would have rewarded something like this. And here he just kind of blinked out. Maybe he had been drinking too much. Maybe he had too much food, whatever. But he just let it pass. And he's thinking about this. Like, this is actually a bad deal. Because he would want to reward this kind of behavior. And he'd want it to be known. And so he's pondering this. He's thinking about this. And at that very time, guess who shows up? Guess who else can't sleep? But this guy can't sleep because he's so excited. Because I'm going to put the death the guy that I hate the most, and I'm about to ready to live the best day of my life. I got banquet number two coming up with the queen. I'm hanging out. And he shows up at the palace really early. In fact, look at verse four. Maybe he's making a lot of noise. He's got a shipley donut. You know, he's pretty pumped up. He's like, I'm so happy. I'm so excited. He's making some noise. And the king says, who is in the court? You see that in verse four? And now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him, okay? So you see what's happening here? It's all coming together. I mean, like, how in the world is this all being shaped and fashioned at this time? And the king's servants were obviously surprised to see him. Apparently, Haman didn't make early morning, like, 5 a.m. visits here. And, like, they said, verse 5, the king's servants said to him, Behold, they were like, Whoa, this is shocking. Like, whoa, this doesn't normally happen. Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. With those words, when Haman hears the king wants to see you in his bedchambers, he would have just been on an amazing power trip. Because no one but the queen or one of the women in the harem would ever go into the bedchambers of the king. 
And all of a sudden, he's being invited. I mean, the guy already thinks he's privileged. He knows he's the number two guy. He's wearing the king's ring. And now he's been invited. He's like, this is awesome how great the king thinks of me. I thought I was going to have the best day ever. I'm singing along with George Strait about how good my day's going to be. And it's even getting better. Whoa, how cool is this? And so Haman came in and the king said to him, you know, you see that sometimes with people, like important people, they don't even let you speak. They just start talking. And Haman's like, whoa, he'd never been in there before. He's like, wow, how cool is this? It's going to be a slam dunk to ask to get Mordecai killed because the king obviously loves me, man. He thinks I'm the greatest thing out, man. So he walks in and the king, though, he starts speaking and he says, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman's going, whoa. In fact, look what it says in verse 6. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? I mean, man, when you are so wrapped up in yourself, you think everything's about you. And he's like, oh, the king wants to honor someone. Who, who more than me? Man, I'm the most honorable guy. In fact, the fact that I'm here makes it very clear. And so he's thinking, whoa, what, what, what exactly should I ask for? And notice that Haman is actually thinking, and what he's doing is he's repeating the king's question while he's thinking. You know, like I do this at different times. I repeat what has been said, and I'm thinking deeply. I, you know, you try it, you know, next time. It buys you a little bit of time, and what he's thinking is like, wait, I'm already the number two guy in the empire. I got more wealth than I know what to do with. I'm able to kill everybody I want to kill. I hate all the Jews. I'm going to kill them all. Oh, what else could I ask for, you know? I mean, I, I'm at this, like, make a wish, and the king is, like, asking me, and so he comes up with it. Uh, verse 7, for the man whom the king desires to honor, and I got it. Verse 8, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. Ha, ah, I know. This is something I've never got to do, and I've always wanted to do it, Haman's thinking. A robe, one of the royal robes, all that purple, uh, let, let that guy wear that. That would be cool. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I, I, he had another idea. I can make this even better. And, verse 8, the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown had been placed. And this is what they would do. They had these beautiful Persian horses. They got them from Armenia. And they would, if a, with the king rode on that horse... That horse then would wear a crown on the horse's head. It t- it's to indicated that the king rode this horse. And so Haman's going, oh, there's something I've never got to do. Ride the king's horse, all decked out like a king. This is cool, man. Oh, and wait. And he's like, oh, I got one more idea, man. He is on a roll. I mean, obviously the sugar in the donut is kicked in. He's in high gear. Maybe he had two espressos that morning, but he's got it in verse 9. He's got one more idea. Oh, 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 oh. And let the robe... And the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor. So he's like, and let, you know, so he's got this, let him dress this guy. He's going to sit on the horse and lead him on horseback through the city square where all the business is taking place. Everybody's eating, the restaurants, the crowd is gathered. Have him paraded around there and proclaim this. He's like, I would love to hear this all day before I go to my second banquet with the queen and king. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. He's like, that would be awesome. It's kind of like the equivalent of like the president of the United States saying, you know, what is it that I could do to honor you? And you're like, 
no, how about let me cruise around on Air Force One, you know, fly all over there, eat all the meals I can, you know what I'm saying? You know how it'd be if you're on there, how cool that would be, kind of land in, visit your family. Hey, how we doing? Life is pretty good here. He's thinking that. And the king is listening intently to every word that he says. And then the king goes, you know, I like how you think. Then the king said to Haman, Haman is like on his tiptoes, like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you've said. And he's just picturing himself on there. And do so for Mordecai. Whoa. You could just see his knees buckle, man. When he said Mordecai, he was mortified. Like, what? The Jew, Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. The king even knows where he's located. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. I like everything you have said. Remember why Haman's there. He wants permission to kill Mordecai early in the morning and hang him in his backyard so the whole city will know that you ought to not mess with Haman. And now he has no choice. He can't show any emotion because he can never show despair, discouragement, sadness in the presence of the king. Because that might look like an assassination attempt. So he is forced to grin and bear it. But how painful that must have been. So verse 11. So Haman took the robe. Can't you see him picking out the robe? Thinking just about 20 seconds ago, this is the robe that I am going to be wearing. Now I have to pick it out for Mordecai. And the horse, he's looking at that horse and man, I'm going to feed this horse a lot of oats because hopefully he'll buck. Okay? I want Mordecai to have the ride of his life. Okay? And he's... He picks out the horse, and he arrays Mordecai. If you're dressing someone, you've got to be pretty close, man. Can you see it? Can you imagine Mordecai Haman face-to-face, and Haman's putting the cloak, the royal garments on him, and, and then lead him on horseback through the city so he doesn't fall short of everything. So he gets the horse. He's dressing Mordecai. He led him on horseback through the city square, and he proclaimed, because he has no choice but to yell this as loud as he can, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Wow. If anything should have gotten the attention of Haman, it should have been these actions. Remember, he's been up all night just giddy because he's going to kill Mordecai. And the king has said, I want you to honor this man. That's how God works. See, the providence of God sometimes works it out that his works in the world alert you and alarm you. I am in this. You are wrong. This, this guy, Mordecai, he's my man. And to make it crystal clear, I'm going to have you walk around and honor him. Change your course. But Haman, he didn't think that way. He's all about himself. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you know people like this. You think, like, this is my food, my job, my desk, my lane in the freeway. You know, it's all about you. Everything in life is always oriented about you. It explains why your marriage is miserable, why you don't have a lot of friends. The people at work tolerate you. Because pride has a grip on your heart. And I'll tell you this, the self-centeredness of pride will keep you from seeing the providence of God, and it will keep you from seeing his works in the world. And Haman, he misses it. How do you think Haman's feeling right now? You know, I mean, he's went from like, this is going to be the best day of my life to the worst day of my life. Look at verse 12. I'll tell you something else that pride will do. 
Pride will keep you from hearing the words of warning that God brings. Well, Mordecai, verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Mordecai goes back to his little cubicle, back there at the king's gate, you know, and he's like, you know, just, I mean, can you imagine Mordecai is like, whoa, what in the world just happened? How do you think Haman's doing with all this? Well, you don't have to guess. But Haman, verse 12, he hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Okay, when, when the person was grieving like there was death, you would, they would cover their head. They would cover their face. And so can't you see him? He is literally mourning, mourning he's moaning and groaning. You know, and, he's, and his head is covered, which means that he's probably running into things while he's moaning and groaning. And what is he doing? He is running back home to his wife. You know how it is. You have a really bad day at the office, right? You know, and you just, oh, I just got to see my wife. She's like, how was your day, honey? And she's probably thinking, like, what? I mean, he was so excited he couldn't sleep all night, right? And he comes in, he's like, oh, and he's crying and weeping and mourning and moaning. His head's covered. He's like, what in the world happened? And of course, what do you do? You just tell her all about it. And we find out that not only you tell his entire, his wife about this, but all his friends seem to hang out at his house at all hours. So if you look at this, I mean, he is the hangout house. I don't know if uh, maybe Zurich, I mean, that's her name, the gold one. Maybe she's a good cook. I don't know, but they're all there because look at this. Verse 13 Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends. There they are, ever with you, everything that had happened to him. So he tells it all. I have to tell you this, at least about Haman. At least he's transparent. He is always telling you what he's thinking, man. He wears everything right on his sleeve. He tells it just the way it is. He pours it all out. Can't you just see him at his table, hand in his face, head covered, and he's whining and moaning and mourning? And you know what? He's telling it all about what had happened, man. Every time he recounted about dressing Mordecai and yelling out, this is the guy whom the king wants to honor, how he was all sick about that. He's telling it all, and they're all listening. They seem to get it, but he doesn't. Look at this. Then his wise men, it's really interesting, same verse, his friends all of a sudden become wise. They're called wise men. That's because of what they're about to say. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, you better take a big time out here, buddy. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They're saying, we get it, don't you? We can read the writing on the wall. Mordecai's Jew. They know a little bit about the Jewish people. They're the ones that got the, all the money and the permission to go back to the promised land. And 50,000 of them already had done that. They're building their temple. They're building their city. Their God, the God of Israel, seems to be mighty and powerful and be able to orchestrate events in such a way that their people that should have perished, they not only survive, but they thrive. And they would maybe, maybe they're even familiar with a Genesis 12 promise to Abraham. But they are, as Persians, very superstitious people. And they see this and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, Haman, if he is Jewish, you're messing with their God. And he's no one to be trifled with. And so they're pleading with him, listen, you're going to fall. You absolutely need to change your ways and your direction. You are like a man on a kayak about ready to go over the deepest falls you've ever seen. Stop. 
And so he's, he's listening to this. They're telling him, you better change your course. But you know what? He simply is not able to respond. You see, they have, he has sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 talks about a worldly sorrow where you are broken up and it, you're pained by the issues in your life and the sin that you have created and caused and its effects on your life. There's a lot of people that are really upset about it. And so they try to dull the pain. Drinking and drugs are one of the most common ways of doing it. Filling your life with just experiences so you don't have to think about how bad you've messed your life up. That is a worldly sorrow. But do not confuse that regret with repentance. I remember years ago talking to a guy who he had totally destroyed his family. Walked away from him. Forced his wife. The whole nine yards. Slept around. Got himself engaged with all these other women. Totally walked away. Broke all the promises he made to his family and his kids. And he talked about how painful that was. And you know what? He had a lot of regret. But he did not have repentance. Repentance is when you realize you have offended and sinned against a holy God and there is brokenness. There is like, God, be merciful to me. I have made a mess of my life. I have hurt others and I have offended you. I'll tell you this. Remorse without repentance leads to regret. If you will not be broken because of your sin before a holy God, you will face great regret. For Haman, man, he's like, listen, I'm healthy. Think about, it. Think about the day before. He's healthy. He's rich. He's powerful. He's got everything he wants. And God flips it in a day. And he starts showing him you were wrong and you were off. Haman is listening. His own wife and his friends, the wise guys now, are telling him, you better change your ways. He's processing this. But you know what? The self-centeredness of pride blinds us to the providence of God. This is very interesting because, you know, Esther, when Mordecai sent those letters, remember Mordecai told Esther, listen, you can't escape just by being in the palace. You will die because of this edict that is out. And furthermore, he said, how do you not know that God has not raised you up for such a time as this? And remember, Esther responded with with brokenness. In fact, she called for a fast. And she says, I'm going to tell my maidens who I am. And we're going to fast. And I want the fasting and praying to last for three days. And I'm going to go put my life on the line in front of the king. Because there is now brokenness and humility in her life. She listened to the words and responded. But when you're prideful, when it's all about you and it's, it's your self-centeredness, you miss the providence of God. Well, you remember, Haman's thinking he's living the best day of his life, or at least he thought that when he started running around in the morning. Well, verse 14, here's a banquet he's been looking forward to all day. And while they were still talking with him, you can see him just pleading with him. The king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Here's the banquet. I'll tell you something else that the self-centeredness of pride causes us to miss. And that is knowing the deliverance that God could give. So here we are, verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. You've got to imagine that Haman is trying to hold it together and pull it together. This has been terrible. He is, I'm sure, all torn up inside, but here he is at the banquet. 
Again, there's got to be a great degree of mystery as to why are we having banquets. This never happens, and yet I'm here. What is going on? And so verse 2, the king said, okay, we've been drinking and eating, all right. Verse 2, then the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? Why are you putting your life at risk like this? It shall be granted to you. I'm benevolent toward you. And what is your request? Even half of the kingdom, it shall be done to you. I, I want to do what you ask, but what is it that you want? And he's, he's perplexed. I mean, what does he want? More clothes? You want to go on a vacation? You want to go on a cruise? What, what is it? He's trying to process this because she has everything that she could possibly want, right? And then, verse 3, the queen, Queen Esther replied, I would imagine that she had rehearsed the speech many times. This is really the most important moment of her life if this goes poorly she dies she has such a delicate and a dangerous task because she has to be able to point out and accuse Haman without incriminating the king who actually created this whole problem of having all the Jews killed because of his ineptness he just handed over the ring he didn't investigate I mean you know how delicate of a matter this is with a guy who's so egocentric like Xerxes And furthermore, he may prefer Haman over her because after all, it had been 30 days since he'd even talked to her. It's not like they're close. She has no idea how this is going to turn out. But I want you to see how she engages the situation. She does so with great respect. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. This is not what... The king is thinking he's going to hear. She literally says, I ask for my life and for my people. And he's like, what? Who are you? It's like they've never even had a conversation like, who's your God? Who are you? He doesn't even know her identity. And then she says, verse 4, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be And she's going to give three words that the king has heard before. To be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. These are the actual words that Haman had told Ahasuerus. I will destroy them, I will kill them, and I will annihilate them. And you see, she's identifying that these these are my people. This is my God. I am a Jew. Now, She goes on, she says, Now if we had been only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would remain silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance of the king. She says, You know, if we'd been sold into slavery, that is a small matter being compared to the fact that genocide has been authorized by him by virtue of his ring. And she's saying this is a matter of even far greater importance than the enslavement of a people. And just for a second. If the Jews had really been rebellious like Haman had painted them, I can assure you that Ahasuerus would have killed a whole bunch of them and paled them and said, listen, if you don't shape up, the rest of you are going to end up like this. The, the whole idea of going back to Israel would have been over. Of course not. The Jews weren't creating problems and issues in the Persian Empire. They were following the, the words of wisdom even given by Jeremiah to actually be a blessing. Of course they weren't problems. And she's saying, if it was just a matter of slavery, I wouldn't have said anything. This is something far greater. Well, the king is processing this. You know that he's thinking, what in the world has happened? 
Then the king's servants, uh, she's, she's processing this. The king's servants are listening. She's, he's trying to figure out what in the world has gone on. And so verse 5, then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? And who would resume to do this? Because he's processing it. He's got he's to blame someone, right? After all, he's kind of like a god, right? Every time he speaks, it's perfect, right? He's got to find someone. And verse 6, Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Now, Haman is already putting this together. As soon as she identifies with the Jewish people, he's like, This, I am dead. Then she says, it's Haman, and he's wicked, and he's done this. And Haman became terrified. You see that in verse 6? Before the king and queen. Can't you just see this scene? Haman is probably literally shaking. The king stands up. He's infuriated. I mean, this guy's got anger issues. He probably literally becomes volcanic. He doesn't know what to do, so what do you do when you don't know what to do? You run away, right? And so he flees. He runs out of there. Verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman, notice this, he thinks, I've got one last chance. Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. He only had to look in the king's eyes to see that the king was infuriated and that he was going to bring about some sort of justice in this matter. And so what he does is Haman breaks protocol. You were never, according to Persian law, ever to be within seven steps of any woman in the harem of the king or the queen. You could never even get near them or touch them. He breaks it all. He goes down. He's bowing down. And look at this. He's going to plead for his life. Likely, he's, he's kissing her feet. That's what the normal way of, of showing submission and begging for mercy would look like. The king is gathering his thoughts. Verse 8, And now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine... Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. How do you think the king is going to do with this? You don't have to wonder. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me and the house? He is accosting her. And as soon as the word went out of the king's mouth, these eunuchs that were gathered and serving and watching, they covered Haman's face because this is what they do before people would die and be executed. They'd cover their faces. It's practiced by the Greeks and the Romans, and here you see it here with the Persians. He, he actually, the king actually accuses him of accosting the very queen, his, his queen. The, he sees this as an attack upon himself. And obviously, Haman has gone public with what he planned to do with Mordecai. This guy is all about himself. Because look at verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, listen to this. Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. You remember Mordecai? Now, the king may have had short-term memory issues, but he probably could remember what he was talking about in the morning. Mordecai? Haman? He was going to impale him? This guy? And the king said, hang him on it. When Haman saw the king and heard the announcement that was then made by 
this eunuch, there were three capital offenses that he knew he was going to die for. One, he manipulated the king into planning and killing all of the queen's people. That's bad. Two, he, perce- he was perceived to accost the actual queen. And three, he had planned to execute the very man whom the king had honored for saving his life. He's dead. And so they literally, verse 10, so they hanged him on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. See, when Haman finally died a very painful, torturous death when he was impaled, he closed his eyes and he met the king of kings, the just one, who will bring judgment against all sin. And even for 3,000 years, Haman has faced justice and wrath. Friends, I want to tell you, don't, do not be deceived. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. That is how it works. If you think like, ah, this whole idea of hell and judgment, God punishing people, that's not popular, and I don't believe it. I can assure you that one day you will, if you do not repent. When God sounds the alarm, the warnings, he, he shows himself, you need to respond, like now. Like it says in Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. God is giving you opportunity right now, pleading with souls. It's now is the time to get to the bank and the safety of the refuge of Jesus before you go over the falls and the cliff because you don't make it. And so what we see here, even Haman, early on he found, remember he said in 5:13 he talked about how he had all the possessions and his progeny and his promotions and privilege. Remember how he talked about all that? And he said, yet this still does not satisfy me. Life apart from God is never satisfying. But furthermore, you rejecting him will lead to your destruction. Just like James said, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What will it be for you? Do you know what our pride does? Our pride shows us our need for Christ. Your pride... My pride, it shows us how much we need him. The eternal son of God lived a perfect life, paid the full penalty for our sins, and gives you forgiveness, new life, if you will trust him. So, friends, what you need to do is trust Jesus now. For the self-centeredness of pride, though, it blinds us to the providence of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How you lay it out in such clear and vivid ways that pride is destructive. But you have a way of breaking through, in fact, right in this very moment, if there is someone who finally understands that you are not a God to be trifled with and sin is a serious issue. It's why you sent your son. Would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness. I see, and I see Jesus. And I turn from myself and my sin, and I trust in Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us, would you give us eyes to see your providence at work? Give us hearts of faith. Would you accomplish your work in our lives for your glory? We love you and we trust you, for you are our Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name.